All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Timothy. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. And just to keep it in context, Paul began in chapter 2 to give instructions on proper conduct in the church. And he continues those instructions on into chapter 3. And so in our last session, we looked at chapter 3, 1 through 7, where Paul gives guidance on the kind of people who should be leaders in the church, that is, elders and overseers. And now here in this section, in 8 through 16, we continue that with Paul giving instructions on servants or ministers, traditionally referred to as deacons. And this is all aimed at making sure the church at Ephesus, and then by application, churches after this time period, churches still today, all aimed at making sure that the church is operating the way it's supposed to and correcting the errors that have crept in there in Ephesus. And so at the end of this section that we're going to look at in this recording, Paul actually makes his aim perfectly clear. He says he's writing so that you will know how one should conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. A key to that, a key to proper functioning, are the leaders and the workers in the church. And so he addressed what type of people the elders, the leaders ought to be. And now he's going to address the deacons or the servants. And so chapter 3, verse 8, picks up with that word deacons. Deacons likewise must be, and he's going to give some criteria for uh, what deacons ought to be like. And the word deacon really is just in some regards a... Not a translation, but a taking of the Greek word and turning it into an English word, deacon. The word itself, if we were to translate it, means assistant or servant or minister. It's somebody, not in a lowly position, but assists others in a particular job, a particular function, a particular work. And thus it refers to some kind of service or assistance. And set apart as it is here indicates some sort of different role and function in the church. We actually see this same distinction in Paul's greeting to the Philippian church. There at the beginning of Philippians, Paul writes this, Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, that is all God's people in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And that's the same distinctions we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, overseers and deacons. And so deacons are workers. They're people who offer their assistance in carrying out the work of the church. So Paul says deacons or ministers or assistants likewise must be, and that likewise must be is picking up the same feel as where we started in verse 2. Overseers must be. Now likewise Deacons or servants must be. And then he lists off some character traits that ought to shape the kind of persons that are put into this role, this work, this function. And so they must be men of dignity. That is honorable, worthy of respect is the idea. There's a gravity about them. These people have weight and they're honorable people. They're worthy of respect. 
Uh, the next one is not insincere, literally not a double talker. In other words, the, they must not be people who speak out of both sides of their mouth, right? You can't trust what they say because on one hand they say this and then on a different occasion they say that. No, the diakonoi, that is the deacons, uh, need to be completely trustworthy in what they say. You can take their word on it. Next, he says they must be not prone to drink much wine, just like the overseers above. They've got to make sure that they are disciplined in uh, their drinking and they're not prone to drink much wine. Also, they're not greedy for money, literally not fond or not pursuing dishonest gain. That is, they don't have a love of money to the point of being questionable in regard to their integrity with money. Uh, they're, they're not the kind of people who are willing to do shady things to make money or to get ahead financially and that sort of stuff. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. Then verse 9 continues by offering a positive fact or character trait about these deacons. Uh, they should be people who hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Notice when he says mystery of the faith, that refers to the truths about God and Christ now revealed in the gospel and the new covenant. This word mystery in the New Testament refers to something that uh, there were clues for leading up to Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, that mystery is now revealed. That mystery is now solved. And so this is a person who needs to be able to hold to the teachings and the truths about the faith of Christ and the faith of the gospel with a clear conscience. And so a deacon needs to be a person who genuinely lives out their faith in Jesus. Verse 10 then continues saying, these men must also first be tested. Then have them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Again, it's clear that we're talking about some sort of very specific, specified role in the church. They've got to be tested. Then you can put them into this function, this role in the church. So it's not just everybody in the church is a servant. It's not that idea. This is some sort of, like the overseers, a specific function or a specific role. And he says they should be tested. The idea of tested is examined and approved found legitimate. They have the right character. Uh, they have a genuine faith, and it's evident all across their life. And so they meet these kinds of character traits or qualifications after you've tested them, examined them, and thus approved them. And to approve them means that you've found them to be beyond reproach. That basic character trait that we saw up above with regard to elders, right? They need to be beyond reproach. We'll see it again in Titus chapter 1 for the elders or the overseers there. They need to be beyond reproach. And likewise, the deacons must be beyond reproach as well. And so after you test them, examine them, uh, if you're going to approve them, they're beyond reproach. They are, they are people of high character and high faithfulness to Jesus and the gospel. And thus, they are in a position where they can serve. And notice that. That's their role. These are servants. They're assistants. They, they're, they're workers in the church and carry the work of the church forward. Now, verse 11 shifts a little bit to a different group. And there's been some bit of a puzzle over who this group is. It says women, and then it begins to give some character traits of women. And so that's a bit of a puzzle. Who are these women? Because he comes right back to the word deacons after this description of these women. And this particular Greek word women can refer to women in general 
Or in some contexts, it's the word for wife, right? Like they didn't have a separate word for wife, so they had women or they had wives, and it was the same word. And this particular word could refer to either. So, for example, the Christian Standard Bible translates it wives here, as if we're talking about wives of the deacons. And the old original NIV did the same thing. They translated wives here. And in support of that is the fact that Paul refers to deacons, then this these women, and then deacons again. And so some have thought, well, what he's talking about is the wives of the deacons. That's possible, but I think it's best to leave it general as just women. Grammatically, the sentence parallels verse 8, where we started talking about deacons. And both uh, verse 8 and verse 11 actually depend on the main verb of verse 2. Um, there is no main verb in verse 11. There's no main verb in verse 8. It's supplying the main verb from verse 2. And so they both depend on that verse, and that suggests that we're talking about three categories. We're talking about elders or overseers. We're talking about uh, male deacons or just deacons as the large category, and then women or women deacons, women servants, um, the fact is, is there wasn't actually a feminine form of this word diakonos, the Greek word behind the word deacon, until the church actually invented it uh, later after the time period of the New Testament. And so Paul wants to specify some traits for the women who are in a role of servanthood, uh, assistanthood in the church. That seems like what uh, is going on here. It would actually be a bit odd if it were wives, because why mention the wives of deacons, but not the wives of the elders up above, which he didn't do. That would seem to be a little bit odd. And so I think it's best just to leave it as the word women in general, which could include the wives of some of the other deacons in the church, if that's who some of them were, but it doesn't limit it to only wives of the deacon. And so it probably refers to women in the church who served in some formal and official capacity as servants, assistants, workers in the church. And so he has some instructions, some guidelines for the kind of women we're talking about here. So he says, women must likewise be dignified. In other words, the same thing that was said about the deacons in general up above, that they need to be uh, men of dignity. Well, it's the same thing here for the ladies. Uh, they need to be honorable, uh, worthy of respect. They need to have that same sense of gravity about them, where there's a weight to them. And these are people who are honorable, dignified women who are worthy of honor and respect. Next, he says, not malicious gossips. The word is diabolos, which means slanderer. It's actually one of the words used for the devil. He's the, the slanderer par excellence, right? These uh, women here need to make sure they're not slanders. They don't run people down. They're not critical. They don't have a critical spirit. And they're not gossiping behind the scenes about people in the church. They are servants and they must not be malicious gossips. Uh, instead, they need to be temperate. Uh, this was a trait mentioned above about the overseers. And there we said that it's related to the word for sobriety. It's the idea of moderation. Like you have a sober approach to life and a sober approach to ministry. Uh, you're temperate. You have your life under control and all things in moderation. Next, 
Paul says they should be faithful in all things. That is trustworthy, tried and true, right? Faithful, like the same sort of thing. They need to be faithful, tried and true sort of people. It's like, you know, you can count on these people. Uh, you know, you can count on them to be faithful to Jesus. You can be faithful to their word. They can be faithful to the church. They're tried and true. Now, these traits stand in contrast to the women we'll meet later in 1 Timothy in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, who haven't been faithful. They haven't been faithful to their pledge to serve the church. They haven't been faithful to their pledge to give themselves full time to the church, but they've become lazy, they've become gossips, they've become busybodies, uh, and they're not, uh, they're not above reproach. And so these traits here is to specify this is the kind of women we should be looking for, holding up as examples in the church who are serving in some sort of formal capacity in the church. Now, after he gives these traits for uh, the women, he comes back to the male deacons and he says this in verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own household." Just like the overseers above, he needs to be a literally one-woman man, faithful and pure in his uh, marriage commitment. He's a one-woman man, and he needs to be the kind of person who can have shown that he can supervise and care for uh, the church well because he's been able to supervise and care for his own children and his whole household. And remember, in their cultural context, their whole household could be fairly large. It would have apprentices. It would have uh, clients. It would have some employees. It would have servants. It would have some extended family. And this deacon needs to have demonstrated his, his character and his trustworthiness and his ability to care for people by caring for and managing his whole household. He ends this by saying, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is an important role. This is an important function. And taking it seriously and serving well brings them honor with the church, with God, right? Like it just brings them honor. In fact, the word confidence means frankness or freedom of speech. That's often the way it's, it's actually translated and used. Sometimes it's actually translated boldness. The idea is that because of their faithful service, they've gained credibility and they now have the freedom to speak frankly about the faith and, and, and speak frankly about the truth of the gospel. They've gained that, that freedom and that frankness because of their faithful service and thus they have credibility to talk that way. Now, before moving on to the final section of chapter three, let me just offer a bit of a reflection here. Uh, on this section about men and women servants in the church. And the key thing for us to pay attention to today out of this is the importance of character, that deacons, servants, ministers need to be men and women of character. Uh, character is the baseline for positions of ministry in the church. Sometimes, at least in our modern context, and a lot of the churches that I have been familiar with, we have actually made uh, other things like more important and sometimes ignored the character components here. We've made their ability to teach a good class, their ability to lead a good Bible study, their, uh, uh, you know, their leadership skills, their visionary capacity, whatever it is. We've made some of those things like, wow, they could really do this task well. But do have they demonstrated the kind of character that Paul expects of them here? 
And I think we need to just remember that, that uh, those other things are above and beyond character, but character is the baseline. So we should uh, put people into positions of ministry within the church based on their character first and foremost, not based on their skills or their experience or their leadership ability if we don't know the state of their character. And character means just because they've been going to church for a long time doesn't necessarily mean they have the kind of character that Paul has described here. Uh, if I could go back and do uh, some things different in ministry, that's one of the things I would definitely emphasize more than I did back then is I would make sure to say small group leaders, first and foremost, meet the qualifications of deacons. Before they just are able to lead a good small group, uh, they have great relational skills. Do they have the character uh, that meets these kind of qualifications for deacons? If so, then we can look at other things. And so the old adage in business is hire for attitude, train for skill. Well, in ministry, it's you put them into service, appoint them to ministry for character, train for skill. And that's what we see here going on with Paul. Paul wants to make sure we head off some problems in the church because we've put people of character into positions of ministry. Now, with that then, Paul has given his expectations for the overseers and the deacons in the church, including some of the women servants in the church. The last few verses of chapter 3 then begin a new section in which Paul speaks directly to Timothy. And he explains his purpose in writing all the things that he has from the beginning of chapter 2 all the way up to this point. And he calls Timothy to faithfully teach these things in the church, to the church there in Ephesus. So the stuff that Paul has just laid out, he wants Timothy to teach and pass on these things, including dealing with the false teaching that's affecting the church. And we'll actually get to that in chapter 4. And so we should see chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, as fairly closely connected to chapter 4, 1 and following as well. The chapter break kind of causes us to not see that connection, but these verses wrap up what Paul just said and lead into what Paul's about to say in chapter 4, 1 and following. So here's what Paul says. He says in verse 14, I am writing these things to you, and the you is singular, to you, Timothy. So I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. And so we note that Paul is sending this letter to stand in in his absence, and Paul hopes to get there before too long. In the ancient world, don't know how long too long was, a few weeks, few months, whatever it is. But he's hoping to get there soon. But in the meantime, he sends this letter to help Timothy um, know how he should proceed with some of the difficulties in the church. And since this letter will be read to the whole church to sort of bolster Timothy's credibility and authority to deal with some of the things going on in the church. And so he writes in this letter and then says that in verse 15, but in case I'm delayed, so I'm writing this to you, uh, hoping to get there soon, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so this states Paul's major aim or objective in writing to Timothy. He's giving Timothy guidance on how to shape and lead the church in Ephesus by passing on how people should act or how they should conduct themselves, how they should carry themselves out as part of God's household. This helps us think about the church in an important way. It's a household. Uh, 
with lots of different kinds of people and lots of different roles to play, but they all uh, work together in one household structure. And that's the idea. In fact, the word church itself literally refers to an assembly of people. In our uh, cultural context, because of 2,000 years of church history, we hear the word church and we think religious organization. But the word church just referred to a gathering of people. And it could be used, for example, of the gathering of the leaders of a city in the ancient world. It could be uh, referred to the gathering of Jews in the synagogue. It just refers to an assembly, a gathering of people. And so the church is a gathering of people who make up God's household. And there's a certain way they need to conduct themselves as God's household. Not only that, but Paul further described the church here as the pillar and support of truth. Both words, pillar and support, refer to holding something up, supporting something. And so one of the roles the church plays in the world is to uphold the truth. Uh, that is, uphold the truth as revealed in Christ. God's truth for the world, for humanity, for history, for where the world is going, that the church is to uphold the truth. And in Ephesus, the church was being affected by falsehood, by lies, by false teaching, which is where Paul goes next in chapter 4. He's going to deal with that. So since the church is supposed to be a pillar and support of truth, that means Timothy has an important function with regard to the false teaching that's going on in the church. Now at this point, having mentioned the truth and the importance of truth and the church and all of that, that leads Paul to an exclamation and confession about the greatness of that truth. And so verse 16 is really this exclamation, almost, almost doxology-like of the greatness of the truth that is found in Christ. And so Paul says this in verse 16, beyond question, great is the mystery of godliness. Beyond question, that is literally, um, admittedly, it has the sense of, and I must confess, or I must admit. And then Paul offers a po poetic reflection on the gospel perhaps even quoting maybe some well-known poem or song that was popular among the early Christians. We're not sure, but this is what he says. He says, He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And it's this poem or song or at least some sort of poetic type reflection on the truth that's found in Christ. And so let's take each line and just make sure we're clear on what's being said. The first line is, he who was revealed in the flesh, that's referring to Jesus coming in the flesh, the incarnation. John chapter one, the word became flesh. So he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. Uh, this is probably a poetic reference to Jesus' resurrection. Um, the resurrection was God's way of vindicating Jesus, vindicating that he was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. In fact, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says this about Jesus. It says he, he was declared the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so that's probably what was vindicated by the spirit refers to here. Then the next three lines refers to the outcome of his life, death, and resurrection. And so the next line is seen by angels. This could refer to Jesus' post-resurrection appearances 
to messengers, because that's the basic meaning of the word translated angel. So it could just be seen by messengers, or it could refer to Jesus' ascension into glory and being seen there by the angels. If it refers to human messengers, then the poem is somewhat chronological. Incarnation, resurrection, appearances after his resurrection to uh, his followers, and then proclamation, and then ascension. And so if the, the word angel here should actually be translated not angel but messenger, that's the general sense of the word, then it's, this poem is chronological like that. If it refers to spiritual messengers, that is angels as we think of them, then the poem has more of a kind of a parallel structure. It goes incarnation, resurrection, ascension, where he would go into heaven and be seen by the angels after his ascension into glory. And then it picks up with proclamation, belief, and then ascension again. Either is possible, and it's not totally clear. Scholars are kind of split on the best way to read the word angels and thus see the structure of the poem. Next, he says, proclaimed among the nations. And we see that in the book of Acts. We see that in Paul's ministry. And we know that has continued clear up until the present day. He's proclaimed among the nations and then believed on in the world, the broader world, that as the proclamation went out, the message about Jesus was believed on and then taken up into glory. Uh, and that would refer to ascension. And the point of all of this, of course, is how marvelous and incredible the gospel story is. And this is the heart of the truth that the church is intended to uphold. And so Paul culminates this little section here with this marvelous reflection on the glory of the gospel, on the incredible nature of the gospel story, that somehow the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and even though he was executed on a Roman cross, he was vindicated by the Spirit of God, uh, that he was proclaimed on in the world, believed in the world, and now ascended into glory, sitting at God's right hand. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the point, and that's the heart of the truth that the church is designed to uphold in the world. All right, thanks for tuning into this session of the Listener's Commentary on 1 Timothy. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that is only possible because of the generosity of people just like you. So if you're one of those who supports this ministry, and there are so many of you, I am incredibly grateful for you. Thank you so much for making this ministry possible and for being partners in this ministry along with me. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do that by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, and you can set up a monthly recurring donation, or you can give a one-time donation right there as well. Let me just say in advance, thanks a ton for your support.